Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show, the infirmary, as we like to call it on uh, Friday mornings here at the Hot Stove Society Kitchen, which is uh, located on the second floor of the beautiful Hotel Andre. It got open last week, so it's been under renovation for a while, and of course, closed for COVID for a while, and here we are. We're back at it, hot and heavy, and uh, we're appreciative that the hotel is, is finding its way. How bon, are you, Chef? I am Bonjour, fabulous. Chef. Bonjour, Mr. Douglas. Yes, I am Tom Douglas. Uh, we are operating several joints around Seattle right now, including our uh, warehouse kitchen out there in Ballard, Serious Takeout. We're going to be adding a Rub With Love barbecue weekend uh, situation out there, which is going to be super fun. Cool. Kind of show off our product and make some deliciousness for lunch and dinner. Uh, we have... Uh, Serious our Sea Town in the Pike Place Market, where uh-huh. I tend to hang out and shuck oysters. Although this last week, you know, we got Carlisle Room open, and uh, this last couple of weeks, I've been hanging at Carlisle Room, uh, cooking on the line. Can you imagine that, Chef? Me back on the line. You know what? I've tried that. It's really fun, but um, you pay the price. Yeah, yeah. Be careful, especially after you cook all day at Sea Town and then <laughs> go cook all night. That's a long day for somebody my of my vintage. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, so we got lots of stuff, fun stuff happening, and we are excited to be up and operating. And uh, our team is kind of reconfiguring, which is nice. Yeah, it's yeah. very cool. Yeah. And, and I'm Tim Thierry Rotier, the chef in the hat, and uh, always happy to be here. And uh, we've closed Luke, our final restaurant, and uh, I'm in the midst of paperwork hell and, you know, just closing everything up. It's not hell, it's just things I have to go through. Mm-hmm. And uh, other than that, it's all good. And I've been canning and, you know, doing all kinds of different things like that. But especially tomatoes right now, they're in full heart of the season. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm having I'm having good time doing that. Two weeks uh, unemployed. That's a, Two we- what well, was the last time I, that I, happened in your you life? You know what? I don't know if it's called unemployed, but I have not stopped since I've uh, stopped. So... Right now, I'm looking forward to the rest time, which is coming down the pipeline, I hope. Yeah, you're heading down to see Willie Nelson down in I California, know. I understand. So, yeah. We have a large show for you this week. We're excited to be here. Uh, we're going to talk about basil. I know I just picked some at our farm in Prosser. We have both the pr- purple opal basil uh-huh. and the regular basil and Thai basil at the farm this year. So it's been fun uh, getting out there picking those. God, when you pick basil, nothing, maybe rosemary. But you know, when you pick oregano or you pick tarragon, you know, it's fine. But when you pick basil, man, it just knocks you in the face. Yeah, like, it's beautiful. Like, a little bit like rosemary does. Uh-huh. Uh, it's so fragrant and fresh. And uh, how do you take advantage of that and keep it going, even when you have to preserve it? I think that's also a key. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. When to use reverse sear on meat and seafood. This is something I have zero experience in, although I've read about it. And I'm going to try it. I, you wanna, I tend you, to be skeptical about stuff like this, but I, it's, it seems like the science is right. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, tangy goat cheese. Uh, we're going to run down to the International District and hang out at Cow Cow and, and uh, the, the King's Barbecue House. And what do you do with some of the stuff that's hanging in the windows there, uh, mm. specifically today, duck? And, of course, we're going to finish today with our Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge, which um, I believe, did I win last week? Yeah, I think you did last week, yes. Oh, did I win the week before? Uh, no. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 think, I, I think you did. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think you win two weeks in Don't give it to him, Terry. No, he did. Pamela, what did I tell you that my, my taste of the week was going to be? Do you have any well, recollection? I can, I can tell you what mine is. All right. Yeah, start mine, there. Mine was, um, you know the shock garden that we had on the radio yeah. here a few weeks ago? 
uh, Tram, my uh, manager that was at Luke, works there and she, she volunteers there. And um, uh, Karen and her picked up some burdock root that they had planted. And they were, no joke, what is that, three feet, two and a half feet? Yes. At least two and a half feet long. And uh, she brought me a couple of them and I was like, oh, this is so cool, so exciting. So I peeled them, cut them about half, you know, an inch, an inch long pieces, just like a carrot. And uh, I boiled them for about, you know, a few minutes, maybe five minutes, seven minutes. And a little lemon juice in it, the water. And uh, then I took them out. And then I cooled them off and I macerated them into rice vinegar, fish sauce, and murin. Wow. And let them overnight marinating. Oh, my God. They were the most scrunchest bites ever the next day. Was it crunchy or? No, they, were, they, were st- they had some tenderness to it, but they were not like tender, like soft. They, had, they still had a little bit of give to it. And what were, is the flavor of burdock? Burdock is like salsify. Do you know what salsify tastes like? No. Or do you know, do you know? A little bit carrot-like too. Carrot. Well, it yeah. doesn't have the sweetness of the carrot, but it uh, oh, the color, it's white. It oxidizes very fast, so you put it in, in lemon water because that's how oh, it stays white. And then you bring it to a boil for just a few minutes to actually break it down a little bit. Because just by itself, raw, it's not a vegetable you want to eat raw. You know, it's just too, like salsify, you don't need salsify It raw. needs love. It needs a little po- poaching first, and then you can cool it off and then use it however you want. You could saute it in brown butter, it's delicious. You could do it in a wok, like, you know, they do in most Asian restaurants. Um, but what I did is I just went bet- in between the two, I poached it, and then I marinated overnight in that fish sauce and uh, murin and, and uh, rice vinegar and a bunch of fresh chive at the last minute and I put that on the table and we had a dinner with the kids and, at home and uh, that, was a, it. that was a big hit <laughs> that was a big hit and then with the leftovers of that little thing I made a quick dressing with a Dijon mustard and then used that on a nice little piece of cold um, halibut the next day because I'd made some halibut and I had some leftover Put that on a salad the next the next day for lunch. It was delicious too. Wow, burdock root. Who have knew? you ever made anything terrible, Terry? I've never heard you say one thing about a terrible. Oh, dish I've that, made I've made stuff. You know, I did was, this last night. Oh, it was scrumptious. I did this. Oh, it was so delicious. Tom, do you know why I'm a chef? Yeah. Number one reason. Do you know why? Because you have confidence in your kitchen. No, because I love to eat. <laughs> so I try to go. make good food. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my, my taste of the week is more of a technique, and uh, we've been using it at the restaurants lately, and I've had it uh, again last night where uh, at Carlisle Room I had the tomato salad. But when uh, sometimes for me, when I get a tomato salad, it's just too much tomato for me. And, uh, really? So, yeah, it's just too much tomato. I don't want that much tomato. So uh, we've been doing this at the restaurants lately, and I really like the combination. So we've been mixing, say, uh, the nice tart acidic tomato mm-hmm. with uh, some slices of the sweet uh, musk melon, right? Like oh, a yeah, cantaloupe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then making the salad out of that. You could do the same with tomatoes and plums or peaches and tomatoes, you know, where you, you match kind of the acid and the sweet together mm-hmm, in your mm-hmm. salad. And to me, it's a more refreshing. By the time I'm to my last bite of that salad, I'm still feeling good about it. Whereas sometimes with a tomato-only salad, I'm like, okay, I got two more tomatoes to eat, and I've, I've had my 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 palate has already been sated with sure, that sure. flavor. So, uh, and it doesn't work to just add different types of tomatoes to it. To well, I also that. think you're one of those people who are very satiated very fast in one flavor. Yeah, you like a, a, an array of flavor. That is true. That is true. 
and I like basil, and that's what's going to come up next. <laughs> if you want to make a deal out of that, I'm sure it's going to be scrumptious. Oh, pesto. On Cairo Radio, you're listening to the Hot Stove Society Show. We appreciate your time. Hopefully you'll stay with us for all two hours. It's going to be good fun. Basil's up next. We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen at the Hotel Andre in downtown Seattle, second floor. Come see us sometime. Pamela is in charge of uh, uh, addressing our class structure here. And so if you ever want to go to hotstovesociety.com and buy a ticket to one of our classes. Oh, you have classes. I keep forgetting that. you have classes here. Mm-hmm. We have classes. We have private business And live, live classes, right? Live classes, dead yeah. classes. We actually <laughs> use live people to cut up dead, dead meat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thank you very much for that, Chef. Let's talk basil for a minute or two or ten here on our uh, hot stove kitchen. You know, one of the things we strive to do here at the hot stove is to not only teach you, let's say we're having a dumpling class, or we're not just here to teach you dumplings. We're here to teach you techniques about how to make the best dumplings and then maybe how to preserve them so that they're ready for when you want to actually serve them. And so same thing with basil, right? There's a time of the year... For a good three months, where basil is everywhere in your garden, right? And it's so delicious. But in January, it really comes in handy to have some of that, <laughs> some of that August basil, some of that September late season basil. Yeah, bring that spark so, from the summer. Exactly. And so uh, I think it's difficult to uh, maintain that aroma mm-hmm. that you get when you're in the midsummer picking basil. It's 90 degrees outside, and when you pick it, and it just bursts with, with, uh, uh, flavor and odor and uh, what do you do? What do you? What have you found in your career? Because you're a preservationist, correct? Probably more so than me. Even uh, what have you found in your career to keep that side of the basil happening so that it's not a dud when you pull it out of the freezer in January, even though it's been frozen for what four months? Right. Uh, you don't want it to come out a dud, or why? Why preserve it? Right. So the number one thing is. What you're smelling today, you won't smell in January, no matter how you try. I, I disagree a little bit. Okay, well, you can disagree, but you can try it, too. Okay, I, I have tried it. I, I'm, I'm, you, you, can, you can have as close as you can get to that, but you will never get no, that's true. as good of a fresh. So, yes. you know, make sure that you have an expectation a little bit changed from what you get in the garden today. However, the most conservation you can get for me, when I want to keep a whole bunch of basil. We're talking like, you know, filling up a half gallon of bucket of basil leaves, then taking them, and what I do is I blanch them. I blanch them for about one second in boiling water, three seconds in boiling water, and then I shock them. And then I take those leaves and I dry them really well overnight on paper towel Uh in the kitchen or on a towel. And then the next day, I blend the whole thing with toasted pine nuts and a little bit of um, olive oil. Mm -hmm. And I blend the whole thing up and a little bit of salt. And I put the whole thing into the freezer. So I put it in smaller container. And then in the winter time, when I need, like, let's say I'm making a pasta, just as simple as a pasta, or even something like a toast. Soup, chicken soup, noodle soup. You know, yeah. like a carrot soup, like in the winter, carrot ginger soup. You throw in a bunch of basil in there. It's so delicious. It, it perks up the whole thing up. And it also gives you that sense, that French sense of uh, summertime, that spark of summertime. Uh-huh. But... The question back to how do you conserve it to the best of its ability, that's how I've been able to do it. If you, br- if you blend it raw, which some people have done, you blend it raw, you're going to end up with something that's going to be black and that's going to lose a lot of its flavor. I don't know why. I don't know the science behind it, but it just doesn't give you as much of a perk. That's why I blanch it. Mm-hmm. 
I also run it overnight flat so I can dry it. And the main reason is because I don't want it to be full of icicle wrapped up into the basil when I freeze it. Does that make sense? The other safety of freezing that puree is to put it in the bag and use the, sa- the food saver where you can cryovac and take the air out. Mm-hmm. Those bags will be safe and will not allow for icicle into your basil. So those are the two, three different things you can do. Mm-hmm. This is when the food... I'm trying to decide if I agree with you or not, because for me... <laughs> well, you don't have to agree. Well, I have never done your technique, but I'm, I'm, I'm working it in my head, and we always do that as chefs, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, of you course, see of somebody's course. dish, and you kind of work it back, like, how, yeah. did they, how did they get there at the end of the day? Uh, I, would, I don't know how worried I would be about icicles, because you're going to take it out, and you're going to let it thaw, and you're going to stir it into a soup that's literally already, you know, it's, it's not... The water is not going to be an issue. Where, um, well, I mean, where I might on- disagree with you a little bit on your technique, to me, is by adding the pine nuts. You are, you are now adding the pine, toasted pine nut flavor to everything you want to add basil to, and that's not necessarily the area for toasted pine nuts, let's say. To me, yeah, in that, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. say in that soup that you made isn't right. necessarily where you want toasted, ground toasted sure. pine Sure, I mean, nuts. you don't have to put the pine nuts. I just I, like I know, to do so it. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. yeah, and you could do it without the pine nuts. That's not a, an issue. You could even do something else. You could do toasted walnuts. You could do, I mean, you could do no nuts or you could add different right. kind of nuts. So that's not... I tend to make the, a classic basil pesto okay. with uh, two-thirds basil, one-third flat-leaf parsley, garlic the pine nuts, the lemon juice, the olive oil. I tend to leave the cheese out. Oh, yeah, I don't put the cheese uh, in so, it either. And then I freeze it as pesto. Correct. Basically, and I use it as pesto. Correct. Uh, and then when I, uh, when I do stir it into my pasta, after the pasta's cooked, you leave a little pasta water in the pan and you stir in your, yep. your pesto. You don't cook it. Right. And then I add my fresh grated Reggiano Parmesan, which brings a little bit of life back. Sure. And fragrance back to the, your pasta. And also it's better to just do fresh cheese grated on top, I think. Mm-hmm. You don't have to freeze that. That's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with you on that 100%. Um, I was going to say something else about the base. Oh, you can also, if you just do plain pureed basil, to me the blanching part is the most important part. Blanching. I never, mine never comes out black. Maybe because I add the lemon juice to it. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, sure. if you put lemon juice, yeah. But mm-hmm. the problem is I've done lemon juice, and the problem that I don't like with lemon juice is that's what comes out first. When you the lemon tart- it out. tartness. Yeah, you get the lemon flavor, and that over to me that overpowers my basil, and I try to stay away from putting lemon in it, which is why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it. All right, let's jump into what's in our garden now, and how do we use it now? We preserved it already for because this is the time to preserve for right. the winter. But we've got Thai basil, which is kind of a, what some people call cinnamon basil because it's yep. kind of got that reddish stem to it. Uh, we've got opal basil, and we've got. Um, Regular classic sweet Genovese sweet basil. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you doing with those? So? Well, Thai basil is my favorite basil to cook with because I think it's the most sustainable in terms of getting the heat in it. It doesn't break down the same way than green basil, sweet basil has a tendency that if you cook it, it kind of dissipates and you know, loses a lot of its, of its greatness. When if you do Thai basil, like especially if you're steaming or if you're baking, if you put a bunch of leaf of, of basil, Thai basil, on top of a piece of fish, for example, salmon or halibut, and you cover it with all those Thai leaf all surrounded the piece of fish, and you bake that piece of fish. Oh, so good. It just impregnates the fish, and it tastes so delicious. And Thai basil has a, 
a pungentness to it that's uh, that's not existing in sweet basil. It has a um, almost like a rosemary does, you know. Where it yeah, has, a little bit oily. Yeah, a bit yeah. oily, and uh-huh. and it doesn't have that in sweet basil. But it's really cool when you bake with. I think when you bake with it and you wrap something up in it with lots of leaves. You know, if you have you go in the garden and you whack one of the plants and you just wrap it up a big piece of fish and you bake it. It's really, really delicious, and it picks up that flavor. I think opal basil is probably the prettiest, that beautiful purple. Right. But it doesn't have a ton of flavor to me. No. Whereas the Genovese sweet uh, basil has Correct. lots of flavor. The other thing I would tell people is don't just pick all the leaves on your basil, uh, especially if you're going to make a pesto or something. Right. All those tender st- stems towards the top of the basil frond or branch or mm-hmm. stem, um, they're all pureable and just as flavorful as the leaves. and. So maybe if you get down to the woody stalk and then go ahead and discard it, but uh, use up those stems. And even on the Thai basil, you know, you, everyone sees Thai basil in our worlds now that we're all used to eating pho, the right. Vietnamese uh, beef noodle soup, uh, where they give you the pile of Thai basil right on your on your little table there with the sprouts. Right. And that's, again, you use all the tops, use the flowers, use all the parts of that basil. Uh, in your soup, and you'll get that really heady yeah. aroma. Especially the flavor of Thai basil, the flower of Thai basil, the top part, those are super delicious and pungent, mm-hmm. really pungent. Which so, is a good thing. Yeah, in your broth, it's delicious. Can I sneak in the science? Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the reason you blanch it is to kill the enzymes that um, lead to decomposing natural materials so they can survive freezing but if you blanch it it boils it and that's why it stays green and fresh there you go boom nice call thank you doctor uh, another scientific fact when we come back using the reverse sear uh this is something i've never done but i've read about it we're going to talk about it and see if uh at the end of the day do we want to try it here on the hot stove society radio show cairo radio 97.3 fm And we're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. We always have a good time here. If you ever want to join us, uh, go to Facebook Live on Friday mornings when we uh, do the show, and you can uh, watch in live, or you can, I guess you can pull it up and watch all week if you ever want to see our kitchen here and um, see the beautiful Pamela and our team, beautiful Chef Chef Terry, Mr. Retired, Mr. I'm only wearing uh, Hawaii shirts from the rest of my life. That's right. Uh, let's talk about the reverse sear, Terry. What do you know about this? And I, I and I'll I'll preface it with, I'm not really interested today in talking about sous vide reverse sear because that's another whole topic. This Correct. is a this is a reverse sear uh, based on baking your steak first and then bringing it out when it's the right temperature and giving it a hard sear on on the outside. Yeah, so. and I, th- I think that reverse sear came out came out as a topic of conversation when sous vide became oh. pretty big because the reverse sear was basically you're searing your steak at the end of its cooking. You know, you first right, and you people couldn't afford sous vide machines in the oh, beginning, right? that makes right? sense yeah. of where that, it came from. It came from as in uh, the topic of conversation. Nobody talked about this until then. And then it yeah. came out because of the idea of people going, wait a minute, I can't just put my steak in the oven and, you know. <laughs> so, Pamela, what got you interested in this? Why did you want this on the show today? Well, you know, I go to Beast and Cleaver every week. Yes, you do. <laughs> and How do you stay so skinny? <laughs> I don't understand. Um, Mike talked me into one of those two-and-a-half-inch um, bone-in ribeyes, eight, and it's a 80-day aged on it. Hey. it was, how much was it? $78 yeah. <laughs> for a pound and a half, and I was so scared to cook it and screw it up. So I got out Bruce Idell first, his fabulous meat cookbook, mm-hmm. but then I pulled down Kenji's. Kenji. 
Yeah. Which is the food lab. The food lab. Mm-hmm. And uh, his technique was more comforting and i loved his explanation of the science of getting the meat warm but it requires a lot of flipping you know he's uh he's very involved so it's in the cast iron in the oven flipping flipping and then bring it up and do it the super hard very fast sear and it was spectacular so i i almost called you that night because i said i've never cooked a piece of meat this successfully mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. <laughs> and why didn't you I didn't want to share it. $78 thing. She does. Ah, oh, let's not include Tom. Let's, in this not, one. let's not tell anybody about this. I'll go on the radio. Yeah. Well, there's two things, uh, two questions that I have. You are the producer of our show and in turn in charge of uh, having. Our, I'm going to get pummeled here. Having guests uh, show up for our show and give us expert advice. And you know, Mr. Lopez, Kenji Lopez Alt, lives here in Seattle. And uh, I don't believe. Not, come he's not on the show? I don't believe that. Uh, I, I do believe that you just said that his recipe was spectacular, <laughs> and yet here we are without him in our presence. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I'm reaching out. I just got his email from Laura, and I'm going to tell him about my reverse here. Okay. <laughs> just saying, as the producer, that I think he would be a great guy to have here right now yeah. to explain. I know it. Yeah. Yeah. Better both, than me. Both Tom and I are not necessarily experts well, on this. Uh, you do I, I a read, version of it, I think. I don't really. Uh, 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 that I know of, uh, maybe maybe you're uh, perceiving what I'm doing as a reverse seer. But uh, to me, what I've read and, and why I think I'm going to try it, especially after your experience with the big steak, is that what I like is that it cuts the mistake time down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're trying to cook a piece of meat on the charcoal grill or in your home kitchen on a cast iron pan, you've got guests in house. You know, you're drinking martinis. You're doing this and that. Uh, you have literally between medium rare and medium, uh, you literally have a minute, maybe, if depending on the temperature well, of your fire, a little to, bit get more. It, to get it perfect. Right, a little bit more if it's a two-pound steak, I mean, uh, with a bone. I mean, that's a little bit longer, but not, you're, not right. Really it's, because you're right. It's a small window compared to the total length of cooking that steak. Yes. The reason I say not really is because... When you have to pull that steak off to let it rest to get to the proper temperature, you still have the same amount of time because of that intense heat on the outside of the steak. If you let it go an extra minute, even if it's a two-inch thick steak, um, if you pulled it, let's say, at 115 and you want it to get to 125 while it rests, um, you literally have 30 seconds to a minute to get into that uh, zone that you want to be in for a perfect steak. You spend $100 on a steak. You want it to be perfect. You have guests coming. You want it to be perfect. No, of course. So what I like about the reverse sear in concept is that you can take it to a very nice place in a gentle 250, 275 degree oven, take it to that 110, 115 area, and then you pull it out. It's dried out. It does um, the Maillard reactions supposedly works better on a dry side of the steak. So your steak is going to be a little bit drier. Sure. And then it browns quickly instead of having to cook the steak all the way through from the outside where you might get too much crust. It gets super hot. It's hard to control the rest. Uh, that's why it's kind of interesting to me. I don't know that it's worth it on a piece of salmon, say, for example. I know people yeah, I wouldn't, trying, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. I'm like not that. sure I'd bother because, yeah. yeah but it doesn't on take a big enough. steak or something like that, it is interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think it's definitely interesting to do on a roast. Like if you have a, a two, three pound beef roast, mm-hmm. a roast beef. You know, you can start it slowly and then you finish it and searing it, which will allow you to have all that crust on the outside to be really beautiful. Because if you try to do this at the beginning, 
it often, first of all, you miss some part and also you will burn some part or you have a tendency to overcook some part. Well, if you do it at the end, it's just an even sear, mm-hmm. and then you're done. You have a beautiful piece of meat, and it's cooked perfectly to where you want it. So, um, so Pamela, uh, everything I've read is that you take your cookie sheet with the small side around, you know, the small edge, half-inch edge. You put your cooling cookie cooling rack in on, on it, and then you put your steak on it so that the air can flow around the steak in the oven at 250, 275. Uh, and then you pull it out and sear it in a hot, mm-hmm. hot, hot cast iron pan. Is that the way you ended up doing it? No, I used the cast iron the whole way. The whole way, which is why you had to flip it a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. Which maybe is why, that's why. On a cookie yeah. sheet, you wouldn't you, have to you flip You wouldn't exactly. have to do that, yeah. Or if you, have a, yeah, if you put it on a cookie sheet and you have a convection oven on top right. of it, you wouldn't have to do any of that. And you wouldn't have to move it. What yeah. temp, when you pulled it out of the oven, what temp was it? Where were you going? What temp did you want to end at? Uh, what did he say, One. 20? Well, that's medium rare. Yeah. yeah. So you wanted to end there. So you pulled it at 120. No, uh, ahead of 120. You pulled it at 115? Uh, uh, it was like 110. Okay. And then you put it, uh, then you turned up your pan and you gave it the hard sear. Yep. Did you put any Gorgeous. fat in that pan? Of course. What kind of fat? <laughs> Olive oil. Olive oil. But Kenji uses butter a lot or a blend. That's, that's blend. what I was, I was. A lot of people use a blend. blend. Yeah, a blend is a good idea. Yeah. But, you know, like if you have your bacon fat left on the counter yeah. or, or you have that chicken fat, whatever, that's oh, a good way. Chicken fat. That's a good way to use it. Um, this is a good way to use it to get that sear. And then what you do is you discard that or you keep it and you incorporate butter at the end and you spoon that all over your steak. So then it really gives you that butter flavor. Um, that's the other thing that's interesting to me is I want smoke on my steak. And so mm. the idea of cooking a steak in the oven has no interest to me. Well, you could do the same thing on your barbecue. You can. It's the important part is to get it off the direct heat and do that damper down your, yeah. gr- your barbecue. Do it low and slow. Keep it at 250, 275. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then when, when you are ready, you can either then put it in the cast iron because you've got the smoke already. Or if you, you can just open up your barbecue lid and your fire will catch and get hot. Right. And then you just move it over for the last uh, minute on both right. sides. It should brown pretty quickly. When yeah, I- this is such a good, fun concept because we're so used to the restaurant industry of going everything fast and searing everything yeah. above the bat. But, you know, ultimately when people started cooking, or not started cooking, but, you know, two, three hundred years ago, everything was done in oven. Everything was done on wood fire. You know, everything was not done the same way that we have the heat cooking right now. So everything was started in an oven, you know, and, and the same principle was applied, and your crust would only come at the end, and it wouldn't come at the beginning, you know, and, and it was the same kind of idea. So it's it a very sense. old principle just brought back. Yep. We're going to jump into goat cheese now, and don't go away just because you hate goat cheese. We're going to tell you how to make it delicious. Wait a minute. Who hates goat cheese? <laughs> right here on the Hot Stove Society Show, Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's Tom Douglas. Terry Rochero, the chef in the hat. We're both here in the Hot Stove Society kitchen with our producer, Pamela, and our, our high-tech genius, Sean uh, McFadden, over there on the trusty... What is that board called that we bought that we really love? The Rode? Uh, it's a Rodecaster Pro. From, Rodecaster yeah, Pro. Yeah, Rode Audio. But it's, yeah, it's great. Makes it... Takes, takes a lot of the guesswork out. Yeah, it's an awesome piece of equipment. Uh, goat cheese, chef. Um, I think of you when I think of goat cheese. You do? Well, just Definitely. the whole milking part. You know, I just uh-huh. think of... No, it was a joke. <laughs> of course, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, I do because, I, I, you know, in the beginning when I start first getting uh, goat cheese, I was in Paris. You know, I wasn't here in this... 
at Cafe Sport uh, in 1984, I was getting goat cheese. Uh, from- I was one of the first Laura Chanel customers, and I was putting a little disc of goat cheese. Um, uh, I think that I had it in breadcrumbs. It might have been toasted pecans. I would make a little disc of the fresh uh-huh. fromage, and then uh, I would bread it and bake it and put it on my wild green salad. That was one of my first dish at Rovers when I took over from Kevin. I did it so many Kevin years before Kevin McKenzie. Did it. Oh, of course, of course. I can't believe you caught me. No, I totally ripped uh, it by off. By the way, I was uh, doing that in LA in 1983, I, but saying, that's I, okay. I totally ripped it off from Alice Waters. <laughs> <laughs> See, but, yeah, I mean, uh, who doesn't like a nice slice of, you know, you buy those round uh, wheel or those round uh, logs of goat cheese and you slice it, you know, you just slice a big piece of it and you put it in an egg wash and a little breadcrumb, and yeah, then you... You f- don't need the egg wash. It's really delicious with egg wash. You okay. should try it, Tom. Okay. You don't need it, but it's just like when you fry something. You don't need a lot of I things. I guess that's the difference for me. And we can, we can go down and, and arm wrestle about it, but for me, I'm not frying it. I am literally warming it. I know. I understand. And if I'm going to fry it, I'm going to fry... I'm going to toast the pecans first, and I'm going to bread it in, or I'm going to toast the breadcrumbs first. Absolutely. But I'm not, I'm not pan frying. I'm just literally gently warming it. But I'm, I was going to tell you how I made it, Mr. <laughs> Douglas, for once. Yes. So be quiet and listen up. Learn so something. I, learn something, maybe. You know, <laughs> learn something from an expert. <laughs> so egg wash, breadcrumb, toasted breadcrumb, and then put the whole thing in a pan with just a little bit of olive oil. And then you fry that piece of goat cheese so all the outside has a nice, beautiful crust. The inside stays really soft and moist. And then you can put that on a piece of uh, roasted chicken or you can put it on sauteed mushroom or you can put it on a salad, just like you used to do at Cafe Sport. Mm -hmm. But the same principle, except I was breading it because I like the idea of cutting through it and have that oozing warm goat cheese come out with a little texture of crust around it. Which is just breadcrumb and egg yolk. So, so uh, in that scenario, like I was just using the fresh fromage, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not even, what is it, three weeks old, typically when Jacques yeah. Gilbert and Marie yeah. made it. It was maybe a three-week process. Correct. Uh, maybe not even that long. But uh, when you talk about it, it reminds me of maybe using the harder Boucheron kind of uh, aged, a little bit aged fresh fromage. Correct. It's a little bit older. It's not the fromage frais of like one week to three weeks. Yeah, because it would just... It would literally just fall apart if you did That didn't. is not a goat cheese you can cook, right. as in not cook that way. warm it, right. What I used to do with the fresh goat cheese, which is, I used to buy Cooley Suscott. I never, one of my fondest memory of Rover's beginning life was, um, oh, I forgot her name, from Cooley Suscott. Mm-hmm. And she came with a big, beautiful wicker basket about two feet wide. Mm-hmm. And she came at the back door of Rover's. I don't know if you remember what it looks like. Oh, you yeah. know, just coming through the back door of a house. And she came and she said, I am, uh, I, have, I have cheese. And I was like, oh, my God, where have you been? Oh, my God. It was like a revelation. Those beautiful. Crotins, right? Yeah, she was making crottin and ash crottin. Oh, my God. Her cheese were just, you know, we don't, we don't see Kulisaska delivery because they don't come to town anymore. They, you know, they deliver, they send their stuff. But. Oh my God, what a memory that, that cheese. They still make goat cheese. And if you, have, if you go to Rice, Washington, which is north of uh, Spokane, basically, mm-hmm. um, towards the Columbia River Basin over there, on, on the, not too far from the Canadian border, you can go and try to visit Kulisaska Cheese Farm. It is, they do such beautiful work in their cheeses. It's incredible. Now, uh, do you remember the, is it the I, I want to say it's Sally Jackson, but that was also the, the pasta woman, uh, so I, I'm not really sure. No, Sally ja- there was a Sally Jackson. That in the, was in the old gray Volvo, and they would come, oh, yeah. to the back of the, <laughs> yeah. come to the back of the restaurant, and they, 
I, by the time I got downstairs, so, you know, my kitchen was uh, two floors up at Dahlia at the time, but by the time I got down to the alley, they'd have the back end of the Volvo, which was about a 1960s station wagon, and they would literally stuff it with straw, and then they would kind of place the cheeses around the straw, all the different oh. cheeses that they made. And so you'd go shop in this dirty alley in this gorgeous <laughs> old classic Volvo station wagon, and you'd shop for your cheeses. Oh, that was super sounds sweet. Yeah. yeah, that was countryside. Sally Jackson, right? Wasn't that Yeah, her? Sally Jackson, yeah. yeah. And Didn't uh, th- she keep the goats in her house? People. Are, she was. Uh, she was a. She was, she was def- out there. She was yeah. definitely a hippie uh, farmer for yeah. sure. <laughs> right up your alley. There, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wish I had met her. Yeah. Yes. But uh, uh, also, if you go to France, one trip that I always tell people you need to do is the Loire Valley. The Loire. You go through the Loire Valley. First of all, it's really beautiful countryside, beautiful chateaux, but everywhere you see sign of goat cheese, fromage de chèvre. You know, they're selling. They're selling their homemade. Uh, cheeses, stop in one of those and see what unpasteurized milk tastes like in terms of goat cheese making. It is so delicious. Oh, my so, mouth is watering. And they have those those different parts of, you know, the different aging, like you said, you know, they have the, the three days old fresh cheese curd and you can buy a little pot and then you buy a baguette at the bakery and boom, boom, you're, you're on the side of the road eating, like a Frenchman, like you're on the side of the road eating your baguette and your goat cheese. Or you can buy the older one with the ash pyramid, you know, and so on and so forth. And then you go through different parts of France, and they have different cheeses. Like in the Larzac, uh, which is the southern part of France, they make those um, um, goat cheese pyramid or, or cake. And halfway through, they put ashes in between the two. Mm-hmm. They use sheep cheese to do that, and that's also delicious, delicious And the ashes cheese. usually just burnt hay, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it depends. I mean, sometimes they use wood. Sometimes they use, and they crumble it really, really fine mm-hmm. and put it, but mostly, mostly hay, yes. My favorite goat cheese, it got me two ways, right? And I think I've told you this story about outside of the um, the Louvre. There's uh-huh. a little brasserie. There's many brasseries, but there was just one. I got to the Louvre too early, and so I, I stopped for breakfast because they weren't open yet. And I had, I'm not an omelet person. I, at least I wasn't. And then I had this, the most perfect little chev and fine herb omelet that I still serve in restaurants today from that inspiration. Literally just a smear of fresh chev inside the omelet, and I get my eggs a little toasty brown mm-hmm. and lots of herbs, lots of fien herbs. So fien herbs are softers like chives, tarragon, uh, basil, whatever, whatever you can Possibly. find. But you don't want rosemary, right? No, you don't no, want no. sage. You want tender herbs, right. uh, which is why they call them fien, I think, yeah. So what's the definition of the word fiend? Because you see it around all the time. Fiends herb mean fine. It doesn't fine, mean fine herbs. Yeah, it doesn't. Okay. Mean, and yeah. I think what they mean by fine herbs is up as opposed to hard herbs. Rosemary is considered hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, chives and basil are considered fine. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that that's what turned me on to a goat cheese omelet, which is one of my. I still make it for dinner sometimes. I make it all the time. It's I like, made it at the farm this last week for. The if thing. I don't know what to make for lunch, or if I don't know what to make for breakfast, mm-hmm. two eggs. Bang, 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 you know, pan on the fire already, quick sauteed, like two heads of mushrooms sliced, mm-hmm. sauteed them in a little bit of olive oil, put in a little goat cheese or put in no cheese, whatever. And no, then, no, no, you got to have cheese. You got to have goat cheese. Yeah. And then pour in the eggs over it. And in, in three minutes, the toast has been in the oven and mm-hmm. you, get a, you get a beautiful omelette in, in five minutes, you're yeah, done. Yeah, exactly. It's such a great way to experience yeah. fresh cheese, fresh mushrooms. Uh, I had summer chantelles. Don't overcook your eggs. 
That's the number one reason of a yeah, good omelet. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I got to say, um, I think there's room for every style of egg there because uh, you like your your omelets much looser than I do. Yeah. And I love it. I love that omelet at the Louvre, and it was plenty, plenty cooked uh, on the outside. There was still soft on the inside. But I like a little toasty brown on the outside of my omelet. We should make an omelet one morning, just a two-egg omelet, and see how we make that. Oh, all right. Yeah, We're exactly. on it next week. All right, we've got another hour to go. we got so much to get in there. Cambodian family owners of Phnom Penh Noodle. I thought they had closed. They reopened. That's they re-opened. why they're here. Well, I'll be darned. <laughs> the daughters are taking it to a new level. Oh, wow. How to, how to deal with a duck from a barbecue window in Chinatown. And, of course, we're going to finish off the day with a Rub With Love Tasty Trivia. We come back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's hour number two of the Hot Stove Society Radio Show on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. We're down here in downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia at the Hotel Andra, uh, just above Lola. If you've ever been to our Lola restaurant, uh, you can find us right upstairs. This used to be a storage room where they used to put all the old mattresses. Well, sure, that's true. It's true, has changed a lot. It sure has changed. Matter of fact, uh, Craig, the owner here, and I had a little putting green here. We used to have putting contests and drink scotch back here in this room. And ever since we built the uh, school, uh, we haven't been able to do that. Uh, we've got a full hour coming up, which is uh, always fun. I love, I love our show. Highlight of my week. I'm glad they stay with us, too. Uh, don't forget to hang with us for Rub With Love Tasty Trivia at the end of this. We're going to be talking with uh, Diane Lee and Dong Ung. Uh, they're going to join us, or they're actually here, right here in the studio, of, to talk about the Phnom Noodle House. Phnom Noodle House over there in, um, I always think of it as being next to Cow Cow, across the street from Tai Tung. Uh, and so that's how I make my references in town. I have no idea what your actual address is. Do you? <laughs> yeah, we just moved several blocks east. So we were next to... Cow Cow and the Kung Fu shop for almost 10 some years until mm-hmm. we closed in 2018 and um, recently opened in 2020 of March right up there on kind of 10th and Jackson in the new Taiwan apartment buildings oh fun so that's Diane talking and um, are you sisters we are sisters. Sisters, You're sisters partners best friends therapy I mean we're like Sister Full circle. Do you take turns on the couch? Okay, now talk to me for an hour and each the therapy. I mean, calling, texting, don't go more than a few days without hearing from each other. Well, let's hear the story about how this restaurant got started, the Panam Noodle House, and uh, let's hear about your father, who was uh, the chef and owner there. And I know we had him, uh, we worked with you guys about 10 or 12 years ago uh, during one of our summer camps. We went to your shop uh, and uh, he was a like a fruit and vegetable carving magician, uh, along with all the other stuff that he did. So can you tell us about how he got started, where he came from as an immigrant, and and all that sort of background information? Yes, so my parents immigrated from um, Cambodia. Mm -hmm. They were born and raised in Batambang, and arrived here in 1980, Mm -hmm. and um, had me 20 days later. Really? No way. Yes. God. Um, Can you imagine this dress? I could only imagine. Coming to a new country and the whole thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in 1987, they opened the first location on Maynard, across mm-hmm. the street from Hinghe Park. Mm-hmm. Um, that sat only 30 mm-hmm. guests. Um, talking about the culinary, the, the craft, and 
he learned that from what, looking at uh, cooking books, Chinese cooking books. Really? And I don't know how he's done it. I mean, he has perfected that craft in his own way. I've tried and can't get anywhere near anything that looks good. Uh, you're talking about his carving ability. <laughs> yes, yeah, the carving uh-huh, ability. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. But was he a chef in uh, Cambodia? He was. My sister could tell this story right, much go better. Go ahead, Diane. I mean, it's, it's magic. When you've got it, you've got it, and you harness that talent. Uh, my grandparents in Cambodia also had a noodle restaurant. Did they? And like most kids who grew up with, in the family business, you worked there as a young child. So he grew up working in the family business, and when he was 14 or 15, a chef didn't show up for work, and he said, hey, I will jump in and try it out. And that, through observation, like he just, it was innate to him to just flow in the kitchen and do like that magic dance with the walk and the fire. And he was really, um, like that just really engaged him and got him going. And it was just natural. Like he picked up a knife and he knew what to do with it. Yeah, never stopped. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that was, he did that in his grandparents' restaurant. Or I mean, his, his parents', parents. restaurant, your grandparents'. Yep. And then, it, um, Things got crazy over there? Things got really crazy. We mm-hmm. say, you know, as an intro, I usually like to say that we are daughters of refugees who escaped and survived the Khmer Rouge killing fields, who fled in pursuit of the American dream, who found it through sharing their culture and cuisine mm-hmm. in a tiny little shop called Phnom Penh Noodle House. So that love of culture and talent, you know, coming to a new world, learning and, and just assimilating here, like what do you do? You do what you love. So you work really hard, raise three daughters, work two, three jobs, save enough money, and you open a shop and do what you love. Mm-hmm. And that happened in 1987. That is so cool and, and such a uh, classic story. Yeah. I Quintessential mean, American dream story. Yeah. Just the epitome of what it means to come over here and pursue that American dream. Still the land of opportunity, no matter how we look at it. So many, for so many years and, and uh, generations, I will say, the... Uh, the, that refugee group, I mean, it was certainly the Vietnamese and the Cambodians and the Lao at that point, uh, but we've had so many runs of refugees throughout the years, uh, and they all show up in restaurant kitchens, and it's so cool. It's partly how I've learned how to uh, spread my wings a little bit in, in cooking, my style of cooking. Now, I know sometimes it's considered culturally inappropriate for me to make a wonton, but screw it. I love wontons, and I'm going to make them. You know, uh, so, uh, but... I, I love that part of the story is that uh, I learned how to make cha ya, the, the uh, Vietnamese spring rolls, uh, from my dishwasher whose wife brought him cha ya every day for his lunch, right? So I love that. Yeah, Food is so emotional, and it's the one thing that can easily connect everyone. Mm-hmm. If you're just open to it and you share your culture and your cuisine and your history that comes with it. Yeah, you don't need to speak or do anything. Just put the plate on the table and sit around the table and eat. And yeah. smiles come up. And then, with love. Exactly. I mean, it's not, there's no language needed, so it's, it's probably the fastest and best way of communication, and you can travel around the world without having any, you don't need a passport for that, you just need, need a pot and some food to put in it. <laughs> exactly. All right, so your dad put his restaurant dream to bed, uh, what, five years ago now? Four years ago? Well, they kind of retired in 2018. Okay. I mean, I, my parents always said, I mean, we grew up in the restaurant business, taught us great work, work ethics, but every day ingraining in us that you really have to appreciate what you have. I think that's the mentality of many refugees who come with Correct. nothing more than really the clothes on their back. Every day you appreciate what you have. And when, you know, we pursued other careers, 
But eventually, my younger sister, who's not here, Darlene, her and her husband took over the restaurant and the operations of it. Um, today, I need to backtrack in my timeline. But in 2018, it's when they retired. And then, Don, you can jump on and... Well, I want, to, I want to save that for the next segment. Uh, as it's transitioned uh, to a new generation, I'd like to talk about that when we come back and what you're doing now, how you've taken the influence of working in your dad's restaurant uh, to what you do now, and uh, who's doing the cooking, who's doing the hosting, and all the things that it takes to make a successful joint. So uh, when we come back, it's the Hot Stove Society show. We're going to talk more about the Banam Noodle House on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. We are back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove. Chef Thierry in the Chapeau. Welcome, Chef. Um, very, very, very. Thank you for being with me, Tom. That's, that's so, love, so nice. I love being with you. Um, <laughs> Most importantly, I love learning about all this Cambodian history that we yeah. have going here. Uh, we're going to continue with our guests, Diane Lee and Don Ung, as they join us to tell us the family history behind the Phnom Penh Noodle House. I'll just point out right here, Phnom Noodle House, just <laughs> right there. And so we learned a little bit about your dad, who came over in the 1980 um, as a refugee with you in the belly of your mom. And t- t- I can't even imagine trying to make that transition nine months pregnant. That is just, it's astonishing. Good for her. Uh, I'm glad you came out okay. Um, and so now you've, you've, you're transitioning to your own restaurant. You grew up in the restaurant. You've tried other things. Now you're coming back. And Dawn, you're the, sh- the chef of the house. Is that true? No, I'm the chef at my home. Oh, at your home. My brother-in-law is the chef in the house in the at rest, Phnom Penh. Phnom Penh. Okay. Yeah. I love that. That's what my and, wife says. She's a chef at home. <laughs> and so uh, are the, men- the menus at the restaurant, are they similar to what your father did and what his father did? Or have you branched out into some new areas? Um, they are the same. Mm-hmm. We did omit some things just because the space is smaller, but we have kept the same menu. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, it's known to be most favorites of our customers, so we want to make sure that we have what they want when they come. And what is that? So, uh, you know, I, I would say I know much more about Vietnamese food, having never even been to Vietnam. Terry's been to Vietnam. But when I'm going to a Cambodian restaurant, what am I looking for? What is what uh, identifies, you know, I think of pods, uh, pod, uh, pod Thai, right, as kind of like an identifier of Vietnamese food. What's the identifier dishes for Cambodian food? Well, at our restaurant, uh, we we call it kathil, which is in C- Cambodian noodles, mm-hmm. and that's one of my favorite things too. Um, I typically have the Phnom Penh noodle special, and the way I like to have it is you typically dry with the soup on the side. We I'll do a house-made <laughs> sauce, that is sweet and soy sauce that goes in it, and the broth is served on the side. Mm-hmm. And typically, I would add um, some bone soup which is the pork neck bones we've used to cook the soup stock Mm -hmm. that's nice and flavorful and tender so that's what i would normally have and so Mm. that soup comes in a bowl do you take the noodles and dip into there or do you eat noodles and then take some soup no typically i would just um, garnish it with some bean sprouts and then our homemade chili oil Uh the noodles mix that up Mm -hmm. yeah and then just have the broth on the side there's already a sauce in it just lift the cup and, and sip it or with a spoon. Or with either, a spoon way. either way. Yeah. yeah. But you don't mix the two no. on the table. No. That would be my first tendency, and I no. knew that was wrong. I would stop you. <laughs> no. <laughs> don't do it. So you, you're definitely focusing on eating the noodle to enjoy the noodle as the noodle. Yes, if Which I'm is, having the dry version. Right, yeah. right. Yep. 
That's cool. And then uh, something else. Give us another dish. That sounds so delicious. I want more. Oh, I have to interject. Don is all about eating the food the right way. If you are at the restaurant and you are not mixing correctly or adding the right uh, garnishes or side, she will stop you and say, let me help you or do it this way. Right. You've got to get it the right bite, the right amount of rice to meat to vegetable and sauce on top ratio. Like... You know what? Bless your heart, because I think it's, it's one thing that's missed a lot. I think in most eth- ethnic restaurants, uh-huh. we go, we have the privilege in, in, in America to eat in so many different great ethnic restaurants. But often, like Tom said, we don't know, we don't know, do. we don't know what to do. We just want to do it, but we don't know. And I think not enough of those restaurants have a captain like you to come around and go, wait, this is how you should do it. Then you have the full version and the actual you know, experience and you're trying to provide to the guests. And so we can actually test the way it's supposed to be done. I mean, I think it's, it's true for any, um, any type of, of food. You know, you should know how to eat. I mean, you wouldn't go to Burger King and take the bun out of the burger and just eat the burger on its own. I mean, you could, but my point is that's not how you eat it, right? That's not how it's made for. But it's the same concept. I mean, you go to, often I go to two restaurants. I'm like, I wish somebody would tell me how to eat this correctly because I bet you that's not how you're supposed to do it. All right, what else are we eating? We Tempt eat. us to get there. Yeah. Mm. I'm already there. I ordered two already of those. Miketang. <laughs> okay. Miketang is a stir fry noodle mm-hmm. or miketang uh, with uh, the crispy egg noodle in like the bird's nest. Mm-hmm. And the stir fry goes in the center. Is Another favorite as well. Uh huh. And is that because it's a texture difference? What's the favorite part of that? Oh, what do you like about that dish? I think it's a combination of uh, nice chewy noodles mm. to the nice saucy gravy sauce and um, mix of vegetables. And if you want protein, it comes with either seafood, chicken, beef, tofu. Mm-hmm. Is that the way it happens in Cambodia too? Like, or is that an Americanized thing when you, you go to many different cultures of Asian cooking where you can substitute whatever protein you want. Is that pretty typical? I mean, I don't know. I've never, I've only been to Hong Kong really in Asia. Uh, is that how it would be in, in Phnom Penh where you would get your choice of protein with that particular dish or are, mm. are the dishes considered whole when you decide as the chef what, what it comes with? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Um, I think here we make it an option. Correct. Right. Kind of like the star system for heat, too, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, my experience experience in Vietnam, not not in, I've never been to Cambodia, but in Vietnam was definitely, uh, you know, you don't have five, this is American, to have five choices of anything. This is the only country in the world that gives you choices to have protein choices. Who's ever heard of that? Most countries, they barely can afford to have the chicken or the fish or whatever they're going, they're not. They're not okay. I was just wondering. Yeah, I would have guessed. Curious about that. So. Yeah, I think they're they're just grateful to have exactly. anything. And here we want to be able to cater to different folks Correct. who doesn't maybe eat certain types of protein. So just catering to those. Yeah, exactly. That's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> That's how you uh, increase business. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Diane, what's your role in the company? Um, I say. Don is the face of Phnom Penh. Darlene is the finance operations. And then Diane, I'm everything else behind the scenes. So email, marketing, events, PR, communications, website, whatever. Mm-hmm. All that sort of thing. <laughs> Hiring, firing. <laughs> well, you know, it's really a family-run business right now. There's only a handful of us, and we're all family. So no firing right now. 
no hiring unless we're just doing it out of the goodness of our hearts. <laughs> We can whisper after the show which of the family members you'd like to fire. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited. Tell us where the new, uh, the new restaurant is one more time. I know you did in the first segment, but tell us where it is and how to get there and uh, what your hours are. All righty. Well, we are on, on Jackson Street in between 8th and 10th in the new apartment building called Taibin. Um, that's just several blocks east of where we used to be, which was on King Street next to the famous Cow Cow. Um, Parents retired in 2012. Don and Darlene took over. Um, did it for several years, but really just doing it in my dad's way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So inheriting the restaurant the way it was and implementing his systems. Um, in 2018, Don's son was hit by a car and suffered a traumatic uh, brain injury. And hence, um, she had to step away from the restaurant. And that was just too much for the family to take. And Darlene couldn't run the restaurant on her own. And we just needed a break. So we closed the restaurant in May of 2018. And then just reopened how long ago? March 2020. March 2020. Oh, so my in. God. <laughs> we haven't even had a grand opening. Oh, my God. That is a cruel twist of fate right there, isn't so it? That is so sad. Yeah. We had a construction thank you party for those who participate <laughs> and were involved in the whole project, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Jerry and I all, uh, well, of course, we closed our 20 businesses in March of uh, 2022. And, uh, oh. yeah, what a sad story that is, both for your son and for your business. That was a... <laughs> tough pill to swallow uh, several uh, well we look forward to coming and supporting you and having yeah, a delicious I will look defi- meal I, I, I will be there Thank you. definitely and he's I retired now he just and, retired and I will so. wait oh. for you to tell me what to order and what to eat <laughs> and, how, and to, how and how to eat it yes absolutely I can't feed wait feed you no absolutely <laughs> oh you're going to feed me too well, that's I'm even better. You. they're like well do you just want to feed me sure <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> alright that's uh, Diane Lee and Don Ong of the Phnom Penh Noodle House uh, so congratulations to you for getting reopened uh, and struggling through the whole pandemic I'm sure it hasn't been easy up next it's uh, Chinatown Barbecue Window we're going to eat some duck on Cairo Radio it's the Hot Stove Society Show 97.3 FM Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society <laughs> Show on Cairo Radio. It's Chef Tom Douglas. And Terry Rotoro, the chef in the hat. And it's time for a little quack, quack, quack. And was, uh, we got into this uh, segment because Pamela went down to, uh, our producer went down to uh, get a duck from Cow Cow. And uh, how long was the adventure trying to get a duck from Cow Cow? They've got a bit of a scam going on. It says, you know, like, call your order in, but then you wait in the long line. Outside. Outside. Yeah. And then they, you get there, and they don't write down your order or anything, so when, the whole process starts all over again. Oh. So it's, a, like, 45 minutes yeah, yeah. to get a duck. But buying a whole duck, you have a lot of duck. And I did not get through it all. Well, and so that's why I wanted you guys to help me with... What what do you do with it? I mean, how much fried rice or duck taco can you eat? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's quite a, a little scary too because in in uh, Chinatown it comes with the head and yeah, and you're just not really sure what to do with all of that. <laughs> and it's also cut up Chinese style, right? Which is literally bone in every bite, and so uh, which doesn't bother me a bit. I've been eating Chinatown duck for a very long time. <laughs> I used to get it packed up and take it to the Mariners game. In the beginning of the Mariners at the Kingdom. Yeah. You were allowed to bring in food with you, and I would get uh, a, a little thing of pork and a, and a half a duck, and I'd go sit in the outfield all by myself with a pack of napkins and just get greasy, <laughs> grimy gopher guts all over me. It was like the best. The only time I would look up is when I heard Dave Niehaus yell, a fly ball deep to left field. 
All then, that kind of stuff. Then you had to duck. Then I had to duck. Oh, oh man. Okay, let's let's start with uh, where where to buy duck. Cow Cow is a lovely place, perfectly reasonable. It's a little difficult right now to get their their barbecue because all their line is outside and it's very popular and they they are not making it as simple. It's maybe. difficult if you don't like to wait. Yeah. Uh, so I go around, and, and I've always gone around the corner. Um, I don't buy, I buy barbecue roast pork. Correct. From Cow Cow, because mm-hmm. I like their roast pork. But I buy generally my duck from King's Barbecue House. Okay. And my charzu I will buy from Harbor City, because they have lots, oh, of, yeah. lots of burnt ends on their charzu, uh, which is the uh, kind of classic Chinese red barbecue pork. Right. So anyway, so uh, I like um, I like different uh, Chinatown barbecue places for different reasons. Right. Duck wise, though, I love the King's Barbecue House. You can yep. get uh, paypa duck, which is where it's butterflied. It's kind of they use chopsticks to kind of make it flat and wide open, and uh, the whole thing is just a crispier option. Right. And then the classic uh, kind of barbecue duck that you see hanging Glaze. by the neck in the window, you know, Hole. which is filled. Uh, the cavity is filled with broth. Right. Uh, as star anise, um, some sort of broth, soy sauce, you know, this and that. And then they sew up the cavity mm-hmm. so that all that broth stays in there when they roast the duck. And the ducks are roasted in a round oven. So basically there's fire 360 degrees around the duck. Same thing with like a whole pig. Right. These ovens can handle a whole pig too, like a 200-pound pig. Uh, you can you can hang in the middle of this oven and it cooks all the way on the outside around it and and so, and that's where they cook all their their barbecue pork and most everything in that same, same oven. But the duck, now you get the duck. So what do you do? Do you just take it home whole, or do you have them cut it? If you want to take it home whole, that's and, and be, I don't know how to say this, but uh, in the, probably the proper way. But as a Caucasian, we think of uh, like when I make duck at one of my restaurants. I tend to cook it like I would cook it as uh, as an American chef, right? Where right. I tend to cook it whole, and then I'll bone it out, and then I'll serve you, my guest, Correct. Uh, a boned-out breast with a boned-out thigh. Or when you cook it, right, you, yeah. you do confit or something of the yeah, leg, yeah, yeah. so you serve it bone-in. Correct. Um, in Chinatown, if you say, I want to cut, they're going to cut it Chinese-style. Straight and through. And you're going to get... Every bit of that duck. And they're you, not deboning. They're cutting no, the bone. No. And when it's barbecued, <laughs> cooked like that, it's cooked well, well done. Correct. So many of those pieces are the only thing left is the skin. Right. Uh, and so you just kind of have to work it. You, you have to be up for the, uh, for the adventure is what right. I'll say. And uh, it is, it's, it is a, cook, getting a duck from Chinatown is an adventure for a lot of people. I think most people in Seattle have been to Chinatown. And uh, I, I, they also have a duck with bones on. I mean, I would think that most people... I would bet not. I would bet that's just not the case. Really? Yeah. When I I'm first moved to Seattle, there was no barbecue in Seattle except for Chinatown duck. Correct. Chinatown barbecue. Right, right, right. Uh, you, you didn't see much southern barbecue, certainly no North Carolina, no Texas. No, no southern for sure. Uh, and so there were a few Seoul black barbecue places, right. which I consider more Alabama, Kansas City style right. of but, you know, there just wasn't a lot of uh, German-style barbecue, which is what that right. barbecue belt of Texas is in Lockhart. That's what Jack's does, is more of a German-style right, barbecue. Right. Uh, anyway, so getting back to the duck. So, Pamela, you bought this duck. You got this box, this uh, clamshell full of uh, this. So many. All chopped, clam- right? All chopped. You bought the whole thing. Yep. Yep. And uh, you can buy it in halves or holes. And then um, in your mind, what were you going to do with it? Like, when, um, why did you buy it? I wanted to, well, 
for the delicious flavor, but I wanted something with rice and spinach and just a, a beautiful stir-fry. You were going to make a stir-fry out of it. So yeah. you were going to pick the meat yep. and put it into your stir-fry. At the yeah, yeah, at the very end. So that is one thing to do with that duck is pick all the meat, pick all the skin. If I was to do that, I would pick the meat, and then a lot of times I pick the skin off of the rest of it that doesn't have much meat, and I crispen that up in another yeah. pan. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, serve a little, little steam bun, a little hoisin sauce, and some crispy duck skin is a great little snack mm. to go along oh, with, say, your duck bun. soup. Yeah. I'm getting so hungry right mm. now. Yeah, so that's one way to use that. Or to just pick your meat and do your steam buns, a little hoisin, a little scallop, more like a what is a classic Peking duck service, right? which is where that skin is really crispy and it's taken off the meat itself. Yes. Yeah. And again, back to the uh, by the whole duck, you can do multiple ways of serving that duck like tom said you can take the breast off the bone and use that as one entree for one dinner if you're buying it whole if you're buying it whole yeah, yeah. you can bone the the breast off the you know of of the bones you can take the breast off and use that as an entree with again you know making rice you could do a beautiful rice and all kind of vegetables in it you know bok choice or whatever you could do all kind of different side to that make a nice little ginger and mirin and rice vinegar and pour that over your duck at the last minute as you're serving it, that would be one style oh, to do delicious. it. Delicious. But you're left with all that carcass and all the legs and the wings and everything. Yes. And then what? You, what? So all the bones can be made into a stock. Oh, it makes great soup. It makes oh. a great, great, great stock. It doesn't take long to cook either because it gives out all that flavor really quickly. And one thing I'll throw in there, Chef, is that if you use chicken stock instead of water to make your soup... Oops. On the duck bones, you just yeah. all of a sudden you just are flavoring wow. this richness of yeah. chicken stock. So double deliciousness, yeah. yeah. And you will have an outstanding stock on your hand, a stock that can be used for soups, fur, or whatever. But you can also take that stock, half of that stock, and reduce it down to almost nothing, and have this gorgeous, gorgeous, intense glaze. You know, like a like a glass de viande kind of idea. And then next time you're making a, a I don't know chicken or beef or whatever. You throw that in the pan after you remove your meat, you put that in the pan, a nugget of butter, finishing it up, pour it over, you get this wonderful little finishing sauce. That's silky and beyond. Yeah. Well, the other thing you can do is that now you've got your duck stock for your soup, and then you just uh, go to Vietnam or Wajamai or, or Mutual Fish, and then you get a pound of shrimp and make little shrimp wontons. And so you simply make uh, delicious mm. little wontons that drop into your beautiful duck broth. And mm-hmm. it, feels, it feels right. Yeah. Like Terry's nat- natural tendency is to go French. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is. And my natural tendency is to try and stay in Asia because where I bought it, that's just my tendency, yeah, yeah. No, right? Of course, I, of I course. tend to think that way. Like when I'm cooking polenta, I tend to stay in Italy. I don't, yeah. I don't kind of go to Germany with my, right. with my food thoughts. Um, so anyway, so uh, those are the kind of things that really, when you explore the Chinatown barbecue window, there's so much to do. There's, yeah. you, sometimes you think, and, and for me, my, my worst case scenario is I'll, I never leave my parking space. I eat the entire duck in my car, <laughs> in my parking space. That's kind of worst case scenario for me because... Well, you pay parking for an hour. I mean, you get plenty of time to eat that duck. <laughs> you know, you get it. It's warm. And, and the only bad part about that is I always buy a half pound of the roast pork to go with it. So then I have to no. eat that too. And, but, uh, but, you know, I think from today's chat about it, getting in your freezer, maybe stocking some of those steam buns, is really a, uh, Annie can teach you how to make them from scratch, but stocking oh, some of those steam buns. Her bow dough, yeah, incredible, really good. So you can also make some nice wonton if you take that duck meat, 
you put off the bone before you make your stock. That's hard. Skin chef. and you I'm chop gonna... it really, really fine. No. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, just, it's a bad. In my mind, it's a bad texture. A wonton is more of a sausage texture. Sure, but you could. Man, okay. I'm just going to argue with you. Then. You know, it's okay. I'm you not can, saying you can argue with me. right or wrong. I'm just going to argue. All you have a to do is add a little moisture. So take some bok choy and then saute them and chop them with it, and you'll have some nice moisture. You're better off, in my mind, you're better off just taking slivers of the duck and the slivers of the bok choy, putting them in your soup and not making a wonton out sure. of so it. It's easier for sure. A lot just easier. Thought. Um, All right. When I'm, we come I'm back, it's time for, uh, one. time for the Rub with Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. And I fully intend, or I fully feel like I'm going to get my butt kicked today. You are. So if, you will, if that makes you happy, stick around for that segment on Cairo <laughs> Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We're back. It's the Hot Stove Society Kitchen Show right here on uh, Cairo Radio. Uh, we're going to time, uh, take some time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs. Rub With Love's uh, are they're made in small batches out at my warehouse in Ballard. They're versatile. They're, we make sauces out of Portland and mustards out of Portland uh, that bring extra layers of flavor to just about any meal. Look for them at Wajamaya in all four of their locations. Seattle Fish Guys on Capitol Hill. McClendon Hardware, all seven lo- locations. Did you know that, Chef? McClendon no, I did not know yeah. that the hardware store was selling it's spice. It's a great account. B&E I need a meats. hammer and some spice rub. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> B&E Meats on uh, Queen Anne and in Des Moines uh, or in the Portland, Oregon area. Check out Gartner's Meats, uh, Zupans and New Seasons. You know, those are just some. We have 5,000 retailers around the country, and, of course, we're available online. And- you are such a popular man. Well, I, we what an empire. This is what 20, an empire. Uh, almost 25 years we've been working at that. I understand. Uh, Pamela, will you tell people, and by the way, are, were those two ladies just as charming as could be yes. from Phnom Penh Noodle House? Please get out there and support their restaurant. They've been through some struggles trying to open during the pandemic. Oh, boy. I mean, we, we closed during the pandemic, but we had a base to close off of. Correct. Uh, what a, what a, a story. story. Yeah. Mm. So get out there and support Phnom Penh Noodle House if you can. Uh, Pamela, tell us uh, how to play the game and who our winner is today, if you would. The three contestants, Tom, Terry, and Annie, are each going to get five questions. Uh, the person who gets the most incorrect is the loser. The most incorrect. <laughs> and we'll pay for the shipping of this week's prize, which is a beautiful combo of chicken rub, veggie rub, and the Chinese 12 spice. And the winner, the lucky winner, is Tony Rudder, listening from Graham, Washington. Very nice. Nice to represent Graham. And uh, Annie Elmore is one of the chef presenters here at the Hot Stove Society. So, uh, And Annie Elmore's Cambodian heritage and her inspiration for getting the Nam Pen Noodle House deserves a big shout. Yeah, out. way to go, Bravo, Annie. Annie. And your, your Cambodian name is Ga- 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 Huh? How, how do you spell that? D-A-R-A. 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 Yeah. So trivia today is a very odd assortment of Cambodian cuisine questions and regular old American nonsense. <laughs> Starting with Terry. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Uh, <laughs> Annie, I'm counting on you. Just, just say, go like this or go like this. <laughs> what is the name of the pungent Cambodian fish paste? That is broadly loved and used. I'm not sure. Why don't you tell me, Pam? Prahuk. <laughs> Do I say it correctly? P-R-A-H-O-K. How do you I say that? I think so. And what would yeah. you use that on? 
everything. Uh, everything. Everything. Like, yeah. like fish so- sauce. Yeah. It's, I mean, pretty much uh, in soup base, sauces. Did you know the answer, Dom? No. No. Okay. Well, Next we question. all learned the new name. Yes. That's well, considered that's the Marmite of Cambodia. There you go. Uh, number two, eating celery negates its calories. Is that true or false? Eating it negates the calories that are in celery? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say yes. It's That's false. True. Chewing and digesting celery does not expend more calories than there are in the vegetable. That's a good question. I like that question. Number three. Well, this is good uh, so far. <laughs> what, what country developed Caesar salad? Well, it was made in Mexico by an American person, and they brought For it to the, the United States. She, she didn't let you go wrong there. <laughs> I, I do know the, the answer to the question in terms of where was it made, but I know there's a trick You're question. You're a winner. It's a yes. It was made for the Hollywood But this stars. one is horrifically hard. How do the Cambodians use the vegetable morning glory? Uh, they saute them just like they would use spinach. <laughs> I'm giving it to you. I, I was in Vietnam. They were all over the place. And that was a discovery for me because I did not know that morning glory was that good. And yeah. in, oh. in Vietnam, they use it a lot, too. And, uh, and I've it, never been to Cambodia, but I can cheat. It's close <laughs> enough. <laughs> and it's a noxious weed. The more you eat it, the better it is. <laughs> it grows oh, like it, crazy. No, I mean, it's For real. the win. Delicious stuff. Uh, true or false, drumettes come from baby chickens. False. Jeez. It comes from the chicken period. <laughs> it's not a baby chicken. It's just... Chicken there are drumettes on a baby chicken. <laughs> yes, there are drumettes on the baby chicken, but there are uh, drumettes on the on the on the chicken too, right? Yeah. The the small it's 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 false because the small drumstick shaped pieces that look like legs are actually upper segments of the wing. Number one, Annie, name a popular method of serving bananas in Cambodia. Really? In dessert. <laughs> How would you prepare them in dessert? I love that in dessert. That's pretty vague. I like that. It's safe. It's safe. Uh, grilled. Grilled. Yes. Yay. Um, <laughs> the two ways you'll find them prepared are skewered and grilled, or pounded thin, coated in batter and speckled with black sesame seeds, which hopefully you'll make for us <laughs> one <Someday>. day. <laughs> um, in what year did George Crumb uh, accidentally invent potato chips? Before 1950? Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 1200? <laughs> it's a yes. It was 1853. <laughs> I'm only 100 years off. I mean, you said before that. I remember that kind of answer. In 2006, a Las Vegas couple was sentenced to time in prison for a fraudulent claim about fast food chili. What was their claim? Um, about the baby back ribs. No, it was that they <laughs> ate a human finger in their oh. chili. Oh. But they were lying. Oh. So they actually went to prison. What is the name of the popular rice breakfast dish in Cambodia? Uh, kanji. Mm, okay. They said borbor. <laughs> Bo-bo. Uh, yeah, D-O-B-O. you can't use the Chinese name. You have to use the Cambodian name. It's, sim- it's, sim- it's similar, but it's not the, the answer. God, uh, she is getting away with murder. <laughs> she, wait, she didn't get that, did she? Um, did she get that? Knowing Pamela, she did. 
1972, an emergency responder declared the sinking Swiss freighter uh, Casarate a huge tapioca time bomb. Why did he call it a tapioca time bomb? I'm not sure I understand the question at all. <laughs> did you say it was a boat? It was a freighter. Yeah. It was a freighter. And uh, when the radio signal went out, um, the reporter said, this is a huge tapioca time bomb after a fire that happened on the boat. Smoke? Close. After the fire, the water yeah, that was water. used to put it out cooked the cargo of 1,500 tons of tapioca <laughs> and started to sink the ship. <laughs> How many did you give her? Two. Two. Tom Douglas. Cambodians have figured out a winning method to roast coffee beans. What is the technique that differentiates their coffee? Uh, they cook it over a stovetop. No. They use uh, fat, either butter or lard, to roast their beans. Uh, number two, true or false, turkey puts you to sleep. True, tryptophan. It's false. Though often attributed to tryptophan, an amino acid present in turkey and other proteins, that Thanksgiving food coma is due to the carbohydrate-rich holiday meal. Uh, what is a mock, the national dish of Cambodia? Uh, it's crispy rice. <laughs> a fish curry. <laughs> you were close. All right. I know you know this one. Number four, what are the seasonings in a Cambodian green mango salad? Uh, fish sauce, shallots, chilies, yep. lime juice, sugar. Yes, close enough. It's basically a nok chom, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. What other countries are some of the most significant influences on the food of Cambodia? Uh, I would say Lao country, China, Vietnam. Yep. All right, team. Two out of five. Oh, I won today. So not, That's crazy. Not only do I have to buy the prize, but I have to pay to ship it. Yay! <laughs> that, is, that is not right. Congratulations, <laughs> uh, Terry. If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on Facebook Live at Hot Stove Society Radio Show. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM, of course. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Uh, our tech wizard is Sean McFadden. Our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of Hot Stove Society on 97.3 FM, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a fabulous weekend.